Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's A Disciple's Point of View. So we're going to continue our series in What Does the Bible Say About? And I'm basically what I'm trying to address is basically, obviously, my very first episode in this series was establishing the Bible's authority, how we can actually go with what the Bible actually says about any particular topic and how the Bible is a special compendium that I believe is divine in origin. And then, obviously, I did a uh, podcast about obeying the government since, you know, there were trends in our culture that were going that way, given what was happening in the headlines. And then I talked about marriage last week and basically what the Bible has to say about marriage. Today is going to be something that's spurred on by current events as well, and that is going to be what the Bible says about Christian nationalism. If you just do a quick Google search and you type in Christian nationalism, you're going to see headlines from the Denver Post, for example. It says, Lauren Boebert is a part of a dangerous religious movement that threatens, etc., whatnot. NBC News, Christian nationalism is on the rise. The Washington Post, and it's an op-ed that says most Christians believe in a special purpose for America. And it has all these alarm bell sounding kind of stories because obviously our leftist secular press doesn't necessarily like the idea of our government being hostily taken over by any religious movement whatsoever, especially Christians. And we might sit here and wonder exactly what Christian nationalism exactly actually is. And if we go over to Wikipedia, we'll get just a basic working definition. And it says Christian nationalism is Christianity affiliated religious nationalism. Christian nationalists primarily focus on internal politics such as passing laws that reflect their view of Christianity and its role in political and social life. So it also says it supports the presence of Christian symbols and statutory or statues basically in the public square, as well as state patronage for display of religions, such as school prayer and exhibition of nativity scenes made during Christmas time, et cetera, whatnot. So it's this idea that basically that the state in a lot of ways is run by the church. And uh, we, we haven't seen examples of that working out too well within our history within the last 2,000 years. But let's focus on what the Bible says about it. And I'm going to give you some verses that seem to support the idea, but then I'm going to give you my view of what I believe about Christian nationalism and what I believe these scriptures are actually more or less indicating. So some of the first few verses that some folks who advocate for this religious movement might point to is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Obviously, last week in my podcast, I talked about the perfect and permissive will of God. But basically, the Apostle Paul is saying here is if we allow our minds and our and our thoughts to be transformed by what the scripture actually says, then we will be able to discern what the absolute perfect will of God is. If we go over to Proverbs 14, verse 34, it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Over in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be made seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. 
A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father that is in heaven. And then if we skip over to Acts chapter 5, verse 29, it says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And that was in response to the religious authorities forbidding them to teach or proclaim the name of Jesus. And then, of course, we talk about Matthew 28, 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, all of that seems to suggest absolutely Christians should totally be on the mission of taking over the government, turning the state into a Christian style state, a Christian style government. Hence, why some really are pushing for Christian nationalism and on the road of evangelizing the world, I guess you could say, uh, for a hostile takeover of the government into a Christian nationalist style government. I'm going to go in a little bit different direction here. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Obviously, I think Jesus was uh, responding to the idea that if the kingdom of God was something that could be born upon the earth by men, then the servants of Jesus Christ, hence the angels, would actually fight that he not be turned over to the Jews. But the thing of it is, is that the only way the new covenant could be instituted per what was described, say, in Isaiah chapter 53, is if Jesus was delivered over to the Jews for the purposes that they were wanting to do, which was put him to death. Okay. Now we also then go over to the book of Romans again and talk about something that the Apostle Paul talked about in ver um, sorry, chapter 13. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And then it kind of goes into the power that God has allowed the state to have and retain. So the Apostle Paul, you have to remember his audience here, are the Romans. What was the Roman Empire? It was a very immoral empire. It was a very violent empire. But then if we go back into the prophetic scriptures, say in Daniel chapter 2 and even into Daniel chapter 7, or I should say Daniel chapter 8, we see that there are powers that God has allowed to exist that are ruling over the nation of Israel for his own purposes to be brought about. And basically, Paul is saying, be subject to those authorities. Don't try to do what the zealots wanted to do. If you remember, a little backtracking here for just a second, whenever Jesus was turned over to the Roman authorities, Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor over the nation of Israel at that time, brought Jesus and a person by the name of Barabbas said, basically, you all have a tradition at your Passover that I release a prisoner to you. Which do you want? Jesus, who is king of the Jews, 
which honestly I think Pontius Pilate thought was a slam dunk. He's like, of course they're going to ask for him, and this is going to be my way to not have to put him to death. Or do you want Barabbas, who is advocating for a hostile overthrow of the Roman Empire? What does that sound like? It sounds like basically that the zealots back in the days of Jesus were Jewish nationalists. They wanted to restore the kingdom of Israel to the glory days of King David. Does this sound familiar with, say, what Christian nationalists want to do? That we want to put Christian ideals as the policy and practice of the state, and that we should do that. We should advocate for that, right? But then the people said, we want Barabbas. And of course, we know the rest of the story that Jesus was then put to death. The Apostle Paul, even a couple decades later, was saying you still should be subject to the governing authorities that are in place over you at this time. The Apostle Paul wasn't advocating for the overthrow of the Roman Empire, which if we were making the case for Christian nationalism, we would then expect that the Apostle Paul would advocate for activism or even potential military action to overthrow the governing authorities that were in place. But instead, Paul says, submit to them. And if you resist them, you are resisting the will of God. That's very interesting because if we wanted to even look at, say, the American Revolution, that was anti-biblical, according to what the scriptures say. But again, we've talked about the perfect and permissive will of God. Yeah, I believe it was in the permissive will of God that he allowed the United States of America to be brought about for a purpose and a time. Just like he has done with all other nations. He did that with the Babylonian Empire. He did that to chasten and punish Israel for 70 years. And then the Medo-Persian Empire came and took that empire over. And then the Greek Empire came and took that empire over. And then the Roman Empire came and took that empire over. God has a, a purpose in a place for every single empire and nation that has existed. Israel stands alone in that Israel stands within the eternal purposes of God. That's kind of another podcast for another day, but Paul is not advocating that basically Christians should then take over the government. He's advocating for quite the opposite to happen. Okay, let's move on to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. This is the only verse within the New Testament writings we have about Messiah's reign upon the earth. Okay, and that I believe is why many people have tried to reinterpret the scriptures, saying that basically that, well, Jesus is currently ruling over the earth in fulfillment of this verse. He is doing it through his church. You have to really... Forgive my phraseology here. You have to bastardize the scriptures to be able to arrive at that conclusion. I believe, as always, that a plain sense interpretation is the best interpretation. And I'm going to go back to some Old Testament prophecies about Messiah's reign upon the earth to support my idea here. Okay, So in Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was committed to them. So it carries this idea. Well, of course, it's like God's people are going to reign in Jesus' name. So, of course, that would support the idea of a spiritual reign of Christ and not an actual reign of Christ. But let's go on. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast 
or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Some people want to say because there is a verse in Second Peter that says a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. So they're saying, well, this is clearly allegorical. He didn't mean it literally. But the problem is, is that we have Old Testament prophecies that did take this idea literally. And if the first coming of Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, then why then should we allegorize and spiritualize those prophecies about the coming Messianic reign upon the earth? We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. This says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is widely, widely quoted at Christmas time because it is exactly what Christmas time is all about. It is all about Jesus coming into the world and being born, the God man, in uh, fulfillment of John chapter 1, verse 1, and in verse 14, and some of the other Old Testament prophecies that I'm going to talk about, that Messiah would not merely be a man, he would be divine in nature. And this also clearly backs that up. His name will be Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are divine titles. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we'll go over to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. This is mostly about how coming the coming Messiah, where he would be from. But there is, at the end of this verse, something very, very relevant that I think is huge here. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. That is the portion of this verse that I think is relevant. It is this ruler that is prophesied numerous times in the Old Testament, and here has said that he shall be eternal in nature. There is only one God, according to the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is probably the, the, the most ideal and top thing that Jewish people would quote from their Old Testament scriptures. Okay, But the Old Testament scriptures here say that the one who is to be ruler in Israel forever is going to be divine in nature. We'll go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 17, starting in verse 11. And this is directed to King David. So King David was seen as the height of ancient Israel, of the kingdom of Israel. And this is something that the zealots in the days of Jesus wanted to return to. And the prophet Nathan is sitting here prophesying to David. So that's a little bit of the backdrop of what's being said here. So it makes a little bit better sense. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled when you must go be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. So it's being told to David here that basically this kingdom, this eternal ruler, will be of your lineage. Hence, he will be from the lineage of David. In verse 12, he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. 
I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. In context, that was King Saul that was before King David. The kingdom was taken away from Saul and given to David. And basically, God is prophesying here that is not going to happen with this ruler that is going to come from your lineage. And verse 14, and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. This is going to be a kingdom that will never, ever pass away. This is going to be a forever kingdom. This isn't some ethereal idea of the church and allowing Christ to reign through the hearts of the church in the current world that we currently live in. This is going to be a literal thing. Again, if the first coming prophecies of Jesus were fulfilled literally, why then would we spiritualize his messianic reign prophecies? That doesn't make an ounce of sense. We have to look at the Messianic reign prophecies in the same light that we did of the coming Messiah that would come, that we believe as Christians was fulfilled in the person and work of Yeshua HaMashiach, or in the Greek, Jesus the Christ. Okay, so let's jump over to Daniel chapter 7 in verses 13 through 14. It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Keep in mind, this is a human-like figure, so one like a son of man, so one that looked like a descendant of people, is coming before the Ancient of Days. Some pastors and commentators believe that the Ancient of Days is the only or one of the few pictures we have of, say, God the Father that is depicted within the Scriptures. Moses said, I believe it was in Exodus uh, 33, verse 20, he asked God, show me your glory. You know, Moses had a unique relationship with God in that, you know, he was the only one, the only human being that really he fully really revealed himself to, right? He was one of the very few that that happened. So that elicits a worship-like response from Moses, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to see who you are, what you look like. Uh, it was a kind of intimacy. It wasn't a weird sexual thing at all. It was this emotional and deep spiritual intimacy where Moses wanted to see his God who had been so communicating with him. And Moses was in awe. He's like, show me your glory. I want to see you. God's response was telling. He said, no man can see my face and live. I will cover you as I, my glory passes by you, and you can look at my back as I pass you by. But no one can see my face and live. Yet, within this prophecy here in Daniel chapter 7, one is brought before the Ancient of Days, brought him near before him. So the Son of Man was brought near before the Ancient of Days, face to face. In verse 14, then to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Several prophecies now that I've talked about. This messianic reign of Jesus Christ or of the Messiah is going to be forever, and this is not, again, an ethereal, symbolic reign where he, Messiah would reign through 
the hearts and lives of his people. No, Messiah would reign himself on the earth forever. Okay? And we have that verse, the only one in the New Testament, in Revelation 20, verse 4, where there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, some people may go, well, a thousand years is not forever. You have to keep in mind that, sure, there will be the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then later on in chapter 20, we see the final rebellion where Satan is loosed again. And that basically there is an indictment against the fleshly-minded people that end up following and deceiving spirits and rebel against God. God totally puts down that rebellion. And then everybody who has ever lived throughout uh, human history is judged at the end of chapter 20. And then we see in verse 21 that the new heavens and the new earth are created and the new Jerusalem comes down. And God, the Ancient of Days, I believe, is depicted in Revelation 21, lives with his people. The kingdom will never end. Okay, it is going to be brought about, not necessarily in ways that was depicted in the Old Testament. Um, the Apostle Paul would say, now we look in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. We understand things that are not necessarily how God intended them to go. Uh, it didn't make sense in uh, John chapter 13 that Jesus said that he was going to go away. And this made the disciples very sad. And going into chapter 14 of the book of John, where he says, if I go away, I will come back for you. That wasn't necessarily prophesied in the Old Testament, but neither was the largely Gentile church that we currently see in our world that Revelation 11 talks about. And in Isaiah chapter 65, where God says, I was found by a nation who did not seek me. It was alluded to. But it wasn't necessarily fully disclosed. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but to the things revealed belong to us and our children forever and ever. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Right? So it's like God has revealed certain things to us, but he not necessarily has revealed the whole picture. Hence why the Old Testament prophecies would say Messiah would reign forever, but then we have a thousand-year reign of Christ, a little bit of a pause so that God can teach an abject lesson to not only his people that are glorified forever, but also to those who are still in the flesh who are deceivable and they end up rebelling against God. And then obviously the world is completely judged. The old things pass away. The new things then come about. So my entire point with this is, is I want to end this thought about Christian nationalism with what happened with Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 16. Obviously there was a promise of offspring to Abraham and Sarah his wife. They were childless. They didn't have any offspring. And then God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans and brings him into a new land and goes basically, hey, you see the stars of the sky? So shall your descendants be, which would be interesting if you didn't have any kids. How in the world could you have any descendants that are going to be numerous as the stars of the sky without any light pollution, mind you? So these things that you see, say on these uh, relaxation videos, on YouTube and you see this just just this ocean of stars. We don't see that in our current cities, but uh, you go out into the countryside where light pollution is at a minimum and then God tells Abram that as you see the stars in the sky show you shall your descendants be. And God is going to be the one to bring that about. But the thing of it is Apparently in Genesis chapter 16, at this point in history, Sarah was like, okay, this hasn't happened yet. Clearly it's not going to be happening through me. I tell you what, take my hand servant, or my maidservant rather, Hagar, and go on into her, have sex with her, and we'll have children through her. 
and that created a whole litany of problems and a child that wasn't the child of the promise, which did eventually happen in the birth of Isaac. And then obviously you have the God of uh, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So Isaac is one of the big patriarchs, the child of the promise. And now we have Jewish people that are getting to the point where they are like the stars of heaven. There are millions of people currently living in the nation of Israel. Okay. My point with that is, is that if we try as the church to try to institute the kingdom of God here on earth. It will be an abysmal failure and has historically been an abysmal failure because Without Jesus coming to reign on the earth, the kingdom of God shall not fully be realized. It will always be flawed and subject to corruption because we are still in the flesh and this world is still fallen. It is still in the grips of the evil one that God is going to fully deal with within the last seven years of human history as prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 and also Revelation chapter 6 through 19. God is going to be the one to bring about his kingdom. Now that being said, we absolutely can be salt and light in this world. We absolutely can vote for people who uphold the ideals that we believe in. We absolutely can be involved in the political discourse. But what I say is a bad thing and a bad idea is to try to do a hostile takeover of the United States government. And what I see some advocating for is that we should Christianize the United States of America. Some people believe that's the only way Jesus will return to the earth. They believe, I believe it's an amillennial position that basically the church Christianizes the world and then basically we serve up the kingdom of God to Jesus on a silver platter. And then he finally comes. It's not what scriptures bear out. That's not what the Bible says. And so I believe that we should not try to turn our prospective nations into Christian nations. We should influence those in the world around us. We should share the gospel with anybody that would hear it. We should give them the roadmap to eternal life. We should always do that. But I believe that in doing so, if we let politics get in the way, it muddies the water and basically silences the gospel because then all you're hearing is politics and then all you're hearing is partisanship. The gospel needs to remain the gospel and politics needs to remain politics. The gospel can influence politics, but I believe if you allow politics to influence the gospel, all hope is lost, I believe. So we really need to stay true to Jesus Christ. We need to keep our eyes on the prize. We need to realize that he is going to institute his kingdom. We need to realize that we should be making disciples and telling people about the eternal life that exists in Jesus Christ. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, I want you to really pay attention to the next segment that's coming up in just a few seconds. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. 
if you truly believe in your heart that he is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and heart and everything through a process, if you will, to embody what has already taken place in your heart. By simply praying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life. And I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do. And your life will change. Your life will change not so much materially, not so much in terms of the world, but your life will change in your standing before God in that you may know that you can have eternal life. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning 1 John. He said, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but so that you can know. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at DisciplePOV, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.